Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Chef Lino Yi is the owner of the restaurant TKO, which stands for the Korean one. What began as a pop-up is now open permanently in East Atlanta's Southern Feed Store. Later this hour, we'll hear about Chef Lino's creative cooking, which, like his own upbringing, forms a bridge between Korean and American cultures and traditions. Plus, speaking of music, our series highlighting local musicians today focuses on the blues with multi-instrumentalist Shelton Powell. First, the year is 1806, and the setting is London. Lady Worthing is the protagonist, a woman of high social status who wants to use her privilege for good, to be of service, as she explains. Abigail Worthing is of mixed race, half Jamaican, half Scottish, And through her character, we learn about life as a person of color in Regency-era London in the novel Murder in Westminster by the Atlanta-based author Vanessa Riley. She joins me now via Zoom. Vanessa, welcome back to City Lights. Lois, thank you for having me. I love coming to talk with you about books. We last spoke in the summer after your novel Sister Mother Warrior was released. I saw that historical novel made the New York Times 100 best books of 2022. Congratulations for that. Well deserved. Thank you so much. Anytime these stories that I'm telling get any kind of accolade or or any kind of mention, I am so grateful. And I'm just excited. The world wants to hear about these stories. So you are writing in the mystery genre with this new book. Well, funny thing that you talk about, uh, Sister Mother Warrior, which is about the Haitian Revolution. One of the fascinating points of research that I found was that when Haiti becomes free, all the abolition movements in the world stop. So, you know, we think about William Wilberforce, Elijah McCauley, Thomas Clarkson, people in America, et cetera, the, these founders of the, of the faith of, that are pushing for freedom. They're all kind of sitting on their hands, not knowing what to do when Haiti becomes free. It's sort of like, hey, we were good with y'all being free, but now you want to run stuff? I don't know about all that. Mm. So that took me aback. As I do deep dives into newspaper articles and, and I'm watching the progress, I am completely fascinated. People who we would think are completely heroes based on our tellings today, when you go back in, it's a lot of nuance, a lot of of crazy, actually. And it completely fascinated me. And this particular time in 1806 is pure chaos in London. So you have this, this stopping of abolition, but they're still mourning Lord Nelson, who's one of the big British admirals. He saved them out of so many different battles and conflicts. He's died. His his body is just brought back in 1806 for the big state funeral. 
you have William Pitt, who's the you know prime minister who's pushed through so many bills. He dies in February. And we don't know how long King George is going to stay sane. He's had these bits back and forth. He's sane at the moment, but we just don't know. So you've got all this turmoil and then you throw in this racial aspect because in all regards, Britain is somewhat leading the world in mobility of diverse populations. There's 10 to 20,000 free blacks living in London. They're in the port cities. They're making a living and they are beginning to, to get in this burgeoning middle class where if you're a third son or, or someone looking for a wealthy wife, they are now an option. Or if you've sent your, your, your boys to the Caribbean to manage those <clears throat> plantations, they're getting into some business too. Um, and so now you have these mixed race populations that are coming to London and Scotland and Ireland for education. So you have this complete mix and you don't see this really talked about. No. in the literature. And to me, that's a shame. And, and I, once again, feel very fortunate to try to bring these stories back to life. Well, clearly you did a lot of research to inform this novel. Now, the Netflix series Bridgerton was phenomenally popular. I'm a fan. Can't wait for the next season. And Bridgerton was also set during the Regency era in London. Part of what was great about this series was not only seeing people of color represented, but depicted among the aristocracy and the nobility. Would you fill us in on Abigail's background? Absolutely. And as, as we're talking about Bridgerton, Julia Quinn's phenomenal series, uh, The Duke and I, is one of my favorites of her book, which is the, the basis of book one, The Viscount of Love Me, uh, basis of book two. They are capturing all the lovely dynamics that we love when we think of Regency. We think of Pride and Prejudice, you know, the conflicts of class and whatnot, and, and the genteel manners and the gossip and the romances and, and whatnot. But in the books, there is an absence of people of color, uh, of, of diversity. And so it's wonderful that Shondaland and, and Julia Quinn are able to reimagine this world and to bring all these different people to the forefront. When you look at the aristocracy, there are more people of color within those ranks than one would first imagine. We are finding now that names have been, or color have been removed from the record. They begin to refer to these family members as, as having tans or of Spanish descent, et cetera, et cetera, things that are more populated. And if you look at the kingdom of Haiti that happens, actually literally starts in 1811, you have rich dukes, you have princes, you have counts instead of earls that are recognized on the world stage with their wealth, with their power. And once again, they're trading, they're going different places, they're going to Prussia and, and various things. So there's this intermingling within the royals that can be captured, that you can get in some aspects of Bridgerton-like atmosphere and be very much on the record of what happened during these time frames. So who erased and when? That is a good question. The victor tells a story. We go back to the world stopping because Haiti is now free, because Haiti in 1825 falls back under oppression of France because of the debts. It's no longer a victor story. So you can see why this the bits of pieces of their history is completely erased. When I found Abadere Toya of um, Sister Mother Warrior, she was a comic book. You know, it was literally a one line in the comic book that I just kept doing a deep dive on. So the history pieces are there, they're just hidden. And so we get back to Abigail. Abigail, I've intentionally, after looking at the migration, particularly of the Scots and the Irish in the West Indies, from running plantations to doing exploration, I wanted to give her that heritage. So she is part Scottish, her father's Scottish, her mother is from Jamaica, and those two populations actually have this thing called second sight. So if you've ever gone someplace and you're like, I've been here before, or you have these little visions of like, you kind of know things in advance. I have a friend, she's Scottish. She has picked out, she knew each house she was going to buy before she went to the house because as 
it was a dream she had like the night before and had never gone to these places. And when she saw it, it was the, it was exactly like her dream. So she like, she knew this was the house she was supposed to buy. So it's a thing, you know, some people call it coincidence, et cetera. This beautiful second sight, I, it's, it gives an ability for somebody said in 1806, where you don't necessarily have all the wonderful fingerprint technology, you don't actually have, you, you know fingerprints exist, you sort of don't have fingerprint technology. You definitely don't have any DNA, you know, forensics is very, 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 very basic at this point in time. To be able to lead into these inferences, to, to add something to the story, I think is, is, is a fun thing. And once again, it's this unification of two populations that you would think are very different, are actually very similar. So Abigail comes from a mixed race family caught in colonialism and a volatile home, we also learn. The family is referred to with the term blackamoor. Would you explain the use of that term? It doesn't feel friendly. Yes. Um, the term today is looked at as a very disparaging term. You think of blackamoor brooches and things like that. But during that time frame, they didn't have African-Americans. You know, we're still at the point where African and in America are not exactly counted as citizens. Black is, is a color, but black amour was used to describe anybody whose complexion was dark. So it could be Indians that could be counted as black amour. It could be certain Asian populations counted as black amour, as well as people of African and Caribbean descent. So that's the period term. But once again, it's in the, you, I'm using it in the context for the authenticity that's the word they use. It is not something, you know, today it's, it's got very negative connotations. Well, in, actually, probably back then it had negative connotations. As you want other people, you want to make them, you're not British, not feel British. You're going to use these terms. But that was the way that they were describing people uh, with color in their skin. Indeed. Now, you write about Abigail's golden complexion. How does colorism affect the way people are judged in early 19th century London? Yeah, early 19th century London is like pretty much every place in the world during this time frame. The closer your skin color was adjacency to white, typically the more, more privileges that one had. So Abigail being of gold complexion, a, a basically a light skin, a black presenting person, she has some more mobility than, say, her cousin, which is a darker-skinned woman. Her cousin Florentina. Florentina is is the math is a math girl. You know, I just throw that stem in there. She's working for Mary Edwards, who's a real person who is the first computer. She did all the computational analysis for the Navy. But Abby, because of who she is, that gives her this mobility to put her in places where the magistrate would be friendly. Because you know when, when we're looking at a mystery at this point in time, you've got to have access. So she needs to be able to have access on, on several planes to be able to talk with Lord Duncan, the magistrate, and for him to take what she's saying seriously because she's a woman and the person of color. Women aren't necessarily want to be heard or seen unless it's in a ballroom in a ball gown. And Abby's trying to get in because she's got this ability to, to logic things through, to puzzle things out. She needs to be able to get this access. So as I'm crafting this character, I have to lean into the norms of that time frame a little bit in that regard. So if a person of color were going to have this level of access, what typically would she look like? What kind of level of education would she have? What kind of ways can she draw empathy? And unfortunately, colorism is an empathetic tool to use during this time frame. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with the author Vanessa Riley. Her new novel is Murder in Westminster. So what happens at the beginning of this story, which forms the basis of the plot? Well, Abigail is, is with her cousin. They are in the box that her husband is rented. Her husband, James, Lord Worthing, is away. He's an explorer. And Abby is 
desperately trying to get the movement started. She, she understands she's got privilege. She's not like everybody else. She has a title, she has privilege, she has money. So she wants to get it started. So she and her cousin are gonna sneak out of the theater to go to a secret meeting at a Chelum Clatham, I think is, is the name of the sect, the church that Wilberforce and his forces are meeting at. The movement is underground. She doesn't wanna draw attention to them because right now, the press is still the press. So if they find out that they're meeting, they will make it sound negative or scandalous. So Abby wants to, to keep this quiet. So she thinks she can sneak out of the Drury Lane Theater. She thinks she's being followed, whatnot. But she gets news that her half-sister, who she hasn't seen since she got married, who was against her marrying Lord Worthing for some reason that we'll probably learn later on in the series. You know, <laughs> she wants to desperately, they were they were very close. Her sister is her half-sister from her father's first marriage. They were close. They grew up together. Um, she loves her sister. She still, to this day, can't understand why. So the minute that she hears that her sister wants to meet with her, she decides not to go to the abolition meeting. She heads back to her house on Queen Street. And lo and behold, that's where she walks into the first murder. And this murder, luckily, is not her, her, her sister, which she's very grateful for. But she's got this neighbor. He's sort of a sexy curmudgeon type, Stapleton Henderson. He's a former Navy man. He literally was standing next to Nelson when, he was, when Nelson was killed. He is back. He's in a contentious marriage. And she has a beautiful terrier named Teacup. He has these two wonderful dogs, <laughs> two wonderful greyhounds, Silver Eye and Santismo. They, and the dogs are always in conflict. And she believes that those two well-behaved dogs are terrorizing little Teacup. And Stapleton is tired of it. So he's building a fence between their two adjoining properties. Even though she's two Queen Street, she's 11 Queen Street, the numbering's off, but that's, that's actually, these are two actual townhomes back to back, sharing the same lawn, backing all the way into St. James Park during this time frame. So one night, dog's going, Abby's coming home, the dogs are going crazy. She's disappointed that her sister, her half-sister is not at her house. She and Stapleton are arguing, they go and they stumble upon his estranged wife, dead on the fence, but on Abby's side of the fence. Now, Abby understands how this is going to go. <laughs> if she can't figure out who did it, are you, who are you going to believe? The commander, former commander, Stapleton Henderson, just come back, you know, one of Lord Nelson's, the revered Lord Nelson's right-hand men, or Abby, a woman that people don't think she should have that position, don't think she should have that money, and don't think she should be living on Queen Street. Hmm. Well, it certainly sets up the suspense of the atmosphere, which continues through this story and grows. If I could analyze you a bit here, Vanessa, you have a doctorate in engineering. You were a very successful engineer in a previous life. And I, I wondered if the problem-solving aspect of detective work was you in Abigail. I, I think you, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. <laughs> <laughs> I love problem solving. Um, engineering is, is nothing more than problem solving and figuring out the best ways to do things, building logic strands and whatnot. And so, yes, Abby gets that. She wants the world to work a certain way. And so she believes it should be logical, it should be order. And chaos is something that drives her crazy. And so when she sees these things, she wants to put the puzzle together. She wants to put the pieces together. And somehow by doing that, she, she believes she's helping in the fabric of the world. She's making a difference in the fabric of the world. And so to me, she's a very exciting character. And I, I can't wait to see where she goes. Abigail says something I found especially revealing about her character. She tells us, solving things gives me a moment to be powerful. Outwitting evildoers offers a sense of control that I lack in every other part of my life. 
So this really is speaking as much to the constraints on women in the early 19th century as anything else. I mean, the fact that here's a very smart, curious, and well-educated young woman, but society is not going to welcome her into the academy, much less to practice any professions. Exactly. To do the things she wants to do, she's going against the grain. And, you know, prior to her marrying Lord Worthing, her father controlled her life, you know, as as he would with any young unmarried woman. The father would be the person who controls things, where she's going, how she's educated, et cetera, et cetera. You hinted before at the marriage between her mother, Magdalena, and her father, John Carrington. There's contention, and she sees how many ways a bad marriage or one with misaligned expectations can diminish a woman and their autonomy in what they do. So now she's, she, by marrying Lord Worthing, she's out of his control. And because Lord Worthing is an explorer, she's freewheeling it. She's in the city. She gets to decide what she wants to do, where she wants to put her time. And because she has solved a few smaller cases for Lord Duncan, the magistrate, she's got a window to get in and to try and make a difference. And she's loving it. What can you tell us about Abigail's godfather, Neil Vaughn? Okay, that just means I watch too much scandal, okay? (laughs) (laughs) I love guilt. Like, what do we say? Guilty. I watched every episode of Scandal. I loved it. Exactly. And and so, you know, Scandal's the daddy and that uh, uh, Papa Pope how they have the ear of, you know, one of the tidbits I found a long time ago was it was rumored that the Prince of Wales had a man he would go to who would fix things for him. I always loved that nugget. And then when I watched Scandal, I was like, ooh, what would that look like in, in Regency time frames? And so you kind of have a Papa Pope person. <laughs> <laughs> he's a and a real warrior in this case. Yes, he's a fixer. Uh, he's a, He loves his goddaughter. So he makes things happen. He is primarily responsible for, you know, her marrying Lord Worthing, basically going above what people would expect someone of her background to be able to do. So he's got the ear of the influential. He knows what's going on in town, uh, you know, so he's going to be a very interesting character once again to help Abby to get in these circumstances or to find out information she wouldn't normally have access to because of how society limits what women can do during that time frame. You mentioned Lord Nelson, William Pitt. Would you talk about how you integrate real-life historic characters into the fictional narrative? Clearly, William Wilberforce is a central character. If not in this plot, then in the minds and intention of Abigail and Flo. You know, I, I researched Wood Wool Force. I know, you know, who Winnie married, uh, who his kids are. I looked for correspondences to kind of get a, an at, you know, the, a flavor of who this man is. I even deep dive, try and go through pictures to kind of see what he looks like. And he's a thin man. Sometimes he's a hunched over man because he was sickly at different points of his life. But when I found out that he, too, was, you know, apoplectic during this time frame of, of Haiti, and he actually plays a, a part in when, when Haiti splits into two countries, he actually plays a very active role of trying to get the country recognized throughout all of Europe as another royal principality. He's a very interesting man. So being able to, to, to put him in and to do honor to who he truly was as well as to, you know, we're inventing him interacting with an imaginary woman and and in the various circumstances. So I want to honor who he was, showcase some of the things he accomplished, but yet add to this, this dynamic of Abigail interfacing with these members of the Ton or abolitionist sect, 
and and give you just a better picture of all of the different conflicts that are happening during this particular time frame we call a regency. You draw a vivid picture of London and its vitality at that time. We get to visit Drury Lane and Westminster Abbey, the Westminster neighborhood. Do they call it a neighborhood? What do they call it? District? <laughs> District. Neighborhood is, is, is questionable, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> Are you an Anglophile? I have become one. And, you know, I love every time I go to London. Last uh, March, this past March, I was in London I got a secret tour of the the behind the scenes in Drury Lane. Ooh. Yes. And there is so much goodies that you can get to. But you know, you know, if you watched any of the coverage, the Queen's funeral, you went into Westminster Hall. You can see that things have not really changed. You know, the the structures of Westminster Abbey, the fabulous churches, they have done a wonderful effort of preserving this history. It is exciting to see some of these things. And, you know, some of these things may have been slightly brand new when it, during Abby's time frame. You know, bring that to the picture because I want you to feel like you're there. I want you to feel like you're walking the streets. And I tell everybody, if, if I ever mention a street, it's a real street. If I ever mention a house, a city, a, a structure, it's real. And I'm going to try and bring back as much as possible what it was like when you actually were there. Because I want you to feel like you're there. Well, I sure did. And I also wondered where I would fit into this social <laughs> stratification. Clearly would not have been part of the aristocracy, but it was such a time of promise as well with, you know, the prelude to the Industrial Revolution as well. I found your dedication so touching for my mother to thank her for the countless hours of Matlock, Remington Steele, and murder she wrote that we enjoyed. Nothing is impossible, I believe. What a wonderful tribute, Vanessa. Thank you so much. My, my mom is an inspiration. She helped form this very curious mind that I have of, of always wondering and asking questions. She, she very much encouraged that. But I remember it's, it's one of my fondest memories. Sunday night, we're sitting here watching Murder, She Wrote. <laughs> and I kept trying to tell mom that Jessica Fletcher was a serial killer. Because how can you go everywhere and somebody get killed? There you go. Is there another book waiting in those proverbial wings? Yes. In July of next year, you're going to get Queen of Exile. We talked about Bridgerton and, and how they kind of invented a little bit of this aristocracy and blending. I'm going to show you how it was real. And you're going to learn about a queen who tried to keep her husband who suffered, in my opinion, post-traumatic stress from being fighting in the American Revolutionary War, fighting in the Revolutionary Wars in Haiti, tried to keep him from falling into madness. But their kingdom falls, Queen Louise, and she has to reinvent her life and reconfigure his fortune in Europe. And she's very brave and she's got two daughters and they've got to understand what the world looks like now, now that the kingdom has fallen. But yet, they're accepted as royals and they're walking and living and, and buying properties and going to balls. And there's even romance on this other side, but they have to challenge who they are and accept what does blackness mean in a, in a, a world where their country is gone. Author Vanessa Riley. More information about her new book, Murder in Westminster is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, our series highlighting local musicians, speaking of music, features multi-instrumentalist Shelton Powell. 
Amplifying Atlanta. This is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Time now for our series, Speaking of Music, where we get to hear from Atlanta musicians in their own words. Hi, my name is Shelton Poe, also known as Cotton Poe. I play acoustic guitar, basic uh, blues harmonica. Sometimes I play some bones, hamazoo, and a mouth harp. Amtrak train so, so long. I used to have a fine woman, but Lord, now she's gone. I would describe the music that I play as uh, traditional black folk music, gospel blues. Saw that train standing at the railroad track. I have many aunts and uncles on my dad's side of the family that were singers and musicians in the church and rhythm and blues artists. My mom and my sister also would sing in church. I basically got started through the church, through my family. Uh, I would say that the gospel music is basically my roots, my foundation. So, so slow How much I loved her Lord, she'll never know Folk music, blues, and uh, hymn songs is basically what I like to listen to and try to emulate. I really enjoy that style of music, old folk, old-time hymns, spirituals. And basically it is the blues, but just changing the words up and some of the notes I hear it and I like to play it. It inspires me and motivates me. Gives me uh, flashbacks these days of being with my family or hearing them in the church. And it really is a pleasure to hear that being still sung today. What you gonna do, son? Trouble get like mine. Run away and hide, put your hand in your head and cry. Show them how you're gonna eat, now your woman is gone. I really don't go out to hear performances these days, I'm working all the time. Mostly I hear the music on the internet now. You can hear live streaming and on the TV. So that's where I pick up a lot of it now and enjoy watching, listening to it, especially even in a hotel room or something like that, or traveling. I'm hoping to change that soon once I retire and start working, go see some live performance, local and international, national artists. So bad, you know, I laid my head down on that old cold, cold track. Laid my head down on that cold railroad track. Saw the train coming, I trained my mind, snatched it back. Blues musician Shelton Powell. You can learn more about Powell's music 
as well as City Lights' multiple Speaking of series, on the website, wabe.org slash speaking of. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Korean fried chicken nuggets, kimchi fried rice, and volcano hot dogs – a delicious blend of Korean and American street foods, is the concept behind the restaurant TKO, short for the Korean one. Their brick-and-mortar location is open now in East Atlanta's Southern Feed Store. Chef Liener joins me now via Zoom to talk about this next chapter. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Would you give us a little background, please, on how you got into the restaurant business? This started in the early 2000s. Uh, My parents had a Korean restaurant in Orlando, Florida, and it did pretty well. But then the recession happened, so we had to shut our doors, and I kind of walked away from it. But then I moved to Atlanta, and I started working in a restaurant, and I just, you know, found my passion for it again and it was a lot of fun and then um I got a job at Lazy Betty I was there for a few years but then the pandemic happened so with our doors being closed we were forced to find alternative things for revenue and we started doing pop-ups and I had so much fun doing it so I was like well let me just try this on my own and create my own menu and it just started from there Mm. you know in the past year I've spoken with two Korean chefs and each talked about the emotional role of food in their lives. How has cooking been a connection to your family's past? Well, my parents immigrated here to America, and I was first generation. And so I grew up eating both Korean food and American food. My household was usually always Korean food, but when I would go out, I would eat American food. And uh, I kind of liked both. But I always wanted to eat what my American friends were eating. Like, I never had, like, a tuna casserole or biscuits and gravy till like, way later in high school. So I was like, oh, I really want to eat this. My mom's like, I don't know what that is. So, um... <laughs> <laughs> but I, I just love doing it, yeah. What's very familiar to my friends was very foreign to me and then vice versa. I was like, you don't eat kimchi at house? And they're like, what is that? And so, but for me, uh, I just always loved it and... Even though my Korean speaking is not very good, I can communicate to my parents by cooking Korean dishes and they'll enjoy and eat. They're like, wow, like this is really good. Like they were actually surprised that I can make Korean food. So that's kind of my way of communicating to my parents is through my cooking. I'm intrigued that your parents were surprised by your Korean cooking. What kind of dishes did they make or did your mother make for you growing up? So typically the staple of a Korean meal, there's always rice. Rice is the most important thing. So there's always rice and there's always side dishes known as panchan. And there's typically a protein, whether it's a purgogi or karbi, which is usually safe for special days, but there's always some kind of meat. And then my favorite is that there's typically served with a soup. And I just love soups. And I remember like the first time I really enjoyed my mother's spicy soft tofu soup. I love spicy foods, but it was just so flavorful to the point of like, I started watching her make it just so I can learn how to make it on my own. And eventually, like, I got the recipe from her. But when I go visit, they're in Orlando, Florida now. So when I go visit, I always ask my mom, like, can you please make some? I'll be in the week. I'll be here for the weekend. So please make sure there's enough for the whole entire weekend. So when were you inspired to create TKO? The inspiration came from working at Lazy Betty. I, I love working at Lazy Betty. I was with them since day one. So almost almost four years. As much as I loved it, the, the quality and the craftsmanship of the food is amazing. And they are one of the best restaurants. But a lot of my friends couldn't afford to eat there. They couldn't visit me. So I was like, I missed hanging out with all my friends. So I was like, well, you know what, let me do these pop-ups with these dishes that I like to make. And they're a lot more affordable and are a lot more approachable. So really, it was just an excuse to hang out and feed my friends so we could spend time together. So for those who aren't familiar, Lazy Betty had a 
fancy, high-priced menu? Yeah, it's a tasting menu, and you know it can range from you know hundred twenty dollars, hundred fifty dollars, which is you know it's definitely worth the price point. But you know my other friends were all cooks, who are all servers, and you know we <laughs> we eat fast food and junk food, and you know uh, so we're like, well, let me make something that's a lot more just casual and just you know basically to our price point. Yeah, but Lazy Betty is like you have to do rigorous tests to like make the perfect dish, and for me, I was like. Let's have a corn dog. Let's have a burger. So it was a lot more easier, a lot more like laid back and a lot more fun. So. Well, and I would think you could please so many more people. A tasting menu of $120 to $150 isn't within most people's price range. Yeah. Why did you want to name your restaurant and at first your pop-up the Korean one? I love the name of TKO for several reasons. One, you know, it's TKO can stand for technical knockout or total knockout, which is a part of like martial arts and fighting and video games. You get a perfect score. They call it TKO. So I was like, well, TKO sounds cool. You know, there's Taekwondo. So it's a play on martial arts. And I, I always dreamed like if I had a restaurant, I would make it look like a Taekwondo dojo. <laughs> but I was like, well, <laughs> it should have mean something. So I was like, I kept thinking about it. I'm like, oh, oh, it's an acronym. TKO stands for the Korean one. At that time, too, uh, the Korean pop band, K-pop, uh, BTS was getting very popular. And like all my friends were like, what does BTS stand for? I'm like, I have no idea. Like, I think they just put those letters together <laughs> just to make up something. So I thought how I'm funny and ironic. I'm like, well, let me just say TKO. If they're going to be BTS, I'll be TKO. So, <laughs> yeah. Right. What's offered on the menu at TKO? So we have a Korean corn dog, which is an adaptation of the American corn dog. And I don't know how or why it started. What the Korean corn dog is, it's battered, and but we do panko, and then we top it off with sugar. Ooh. And it's half a hot dog inside, and it's half mozzarella cheese. So it's like sweet, and it's cheesy, and it's savory. Again, I have no idea how it started, but that's just the way a Korean corn dog is. Okay, so you did not create this. <laughs> I did not. But I did create one dish. It's our volcano hot dog. Yes, you must tell us the backstory <laughs> and what goes in it on top of it. Yes. So years ago, I was working on a food truck in Orlando, Florida. It was a sushi food truck. It was called Sushi and Soul on the roll, and it's still open now. So we were serving sushi, and it was we were outside of this like punk rock bar, and the bar was busy, but we were not busy. And I made this joke: I'm like, man, these kids don't want sushi. Like these kids want hot dogs and hamburgers. So as a joke, I went and bought some hot dogs, and I basically took all the toppings on our volcano roll and put it on a hot dog. I waited for a while, and then someone eventually bought it. And then, like, they came back with their friends, like, hey, like, that was really good. Can we get more of this hot dog? So it kind of was, well, a dish that turned from spite actually turned out to be a really good seller. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to carry this dish forever because it's a fun joke for me because, like, I like, I elevated a hot dog or I uh, brought sushi down to the level of a hot dog. But <laughs> seriously, it's a, yeah, it's a hot dog. And what I do is I top it off with this spicy crab salad and I torch it. Then I drizzle eel sauce, sriracha, scallions, and sesame seeds, and some chili flakes. So when you eat it, it's your mind is playing tricks on you. You're like, well, it's a hot dog, but it tastes like sushi. So it's that's the volcano hot dog. Oh, my. Now, when people first try this combination, what have been some of the responses you've heard? <laughs> Most people enjoy it, but I've, I've seen some people get very upset about it because they're like, they can't understand it. They're like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, is this sushi or a hot dog? And I'm like, well, just let your palate interpret it. <laughs> but uh, I just love it because I like whimsical things. And like, I like taking something that's familiar and making it foreign and taking something foreign and making it familiar. So for me, it's like, well, if you like hot dogs, you'll like this. And someone's if you like sushi, you'll still like this. So it's it's one of those fun things. I can play with both worlds. For some people, do you have to stop and explain what kimchi or eel sauce tastes like before they will taste it? 
Luckily now, I think with the boom of like Korean culture, whether it's K-pop music or Korean dramas, I believe Korean culture is getting more and more popular. So 15, 20 years ago, like I would have to explain what kimchi is. But now most people will see it and like, oh, I love kimchi. So I'm very lucky and grateful that Korean culture is getting more popular, not just through music or TV, but through the food. Like a lot of my friends... When we want to eat in a group setting, they're like, hey, let's go out to get Korean barbecue. And watching my you know, American friends like just gobble up kimchi and like eat Korean barbecue, it, it actually makes me feel so happy. I don't have to explain kimchi as much anymore. So it's, it saves me a lot of trouble trying to explain like, yeah, it's fermented cabbage, which may not sound very appealing to most people, but uh, it's making it a lot easier now. It's so heartening to know that these foods have made their way enough into American diets that you don't need to explain to everyone or to most people. I'm curious about what it was like having a pop-up business during COVID. Whether it's during COVID or outside of COVID, I have a lot of admiration for my other pop-up shows because a lot of people don't realize the amount of work that goes into it other than having a restaurant where you get deliveries sent to you i don't have to drive to all these other grocery stores whether it's h mart or before farmer's market or sam's club so i have to do all my own driving i do all my own shopping then you have to bring it back and then unload your car prep it uh whether it's the day before or the you know day of and load it back into your car drive to the site that you're doing at whether it's a restaurant or brewery unload your all your cars and just it's a lot of work and people don't see all the behind the scenes things and the luxury of a restaurant, like you have a staff, you have a crew, you have a, you know, a dishwasher, a prep team, but for the pop-ups, it's just you. You're the only one doing it and no one's paying you for your labor hours. You only make the money off of the sales. So it's a lot of work, but it can be very rewarding when you have people come back like, wow, that was delicious. I can't wait to see you again. I follow you on Instagram. So it can be very gratifying, but it's a lot of work that a lot of people don't see. Oh, wow. It sounds like it. What have been some of the challenges you've faced transitioning from being a pop-up to opening a brick and mortar? I would say the biggest challenge is staffing it because doing a pop-up, it's usually by myself or I have like one other friend helping me out. But now I have to hire a staff of seven to eight you know, team members. And most of them are my friends, which is great. But then everyone has their own personal lives. Like some people run school or some people don't want to work too late. So staffing has been the most challenging thing. And, you know, I want to make sure everyone's having a good time. And, you know, God forbid another pandemic does happen. Like I, I want to keep my staff to a bare minimum because I would it would just crush me to like lay off a staff of 30 people or 40 people. So I've tried to keep my staff to a bare minimum to keep it very tight-knit, but staffing is probably the biggest challenge. And even though I'll have the brick and mortar, I will probably continue to do a few pop-ups because just to remind everyone out there, like, hey, like, Lino didn't forget its roots. Like, I'm still out here. I know the struggle, and I just want to continue that maybe, like, once or twice a month. Just like, hey, I'm I'm still part of the game, guys. I'm, I didn't forget where I came from. I remember my roots. And, in fact, you are honoring a vow of opening a Korean restaurant, a vow you made in 2010 when your parents' restaurant had to close. Is that correct? That is true. Uh, the original plan, when I turned 30 years old, I moved to Atlanta and I gave myself a five-year plan. I said, after five years, I'll return to Orlando, Florida, like the prodigal son and open my own restaurant. And for better or worse, the pandemic happened at year five and I was like well I can't travel right now because we're in lockdown I was like well I can't go back down to Florida and my parents were like well stay there like wait till it's safe so during that time it was I started doing these pop-ups and they got really popular I'm like well these it's getting so popular and I don't want to just abandon it and just start all over in Orlando Florida I'm like well let me just stay here and continue building this fan base and this community so in a weird twist of fate and a series of misfortune events I kind of owe it to the pandemic because it forced me to do this and uh, stay here in Atlanta, which I love now. I love Atlanta, and I, I want to stay here and like build my own roots here. Lena, what were your parents' responses when you told them you were opening a brick and mortar? 
Uh, it was mixed, you know, uh, growing up Asian, like they're like, well, you know, you have to be a doctor or a lawyer or you're a disappointment. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, uh, they were very supportive. They knew how hard being in the service industry is and running a restaurant. They know the challenges of it after owning one and shutting one down, but they saw how happy I was. And um, they're like, well, Lino is very passionate about this. You know, we should let him do this. And my mother... God bless her. She's always tells me she's praying for me. So maybe it works, but uh, I, they are very happy with it. So of course, I, I'm sure there'll be some criticism because my food is being very fusion. They're like, this is an authentic Korean, but uh, I'll win them over eventually. Chef Lino Yi, TKO, or the Korean one, is open now in East Atlanta's Southern Feet store. And more information is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll drive to Cartersville and hear about the Savoy Automobile Museum. Plus, WABE's H. Johnson shares some of his encyclopedic jazz knowledge. If you missed part of today's show, like my earlier conversation with the author Vanessa Riley about her new novel, Murder in Westminster, you could catch up through our podcast or on our website wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find a complete archive of our stories so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Droves. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on both Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.